The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are continuing to look at a book that um, many over centuries have considered a dangerous book because of what it can produce in our hearts. And I would hope um, that you, as you've seen or maybe have heard on the podcast as well, that it is anything but. It is a beautiful book that actually deeply minds out the things that we wouldn't normally talk about or maybe we would avoid. There's a reason the birds actually, as you heard, played that old song during the offertory, penned uh, that song from this particular passage. Uh, Commentators say that this is one of the most beautifully written poetic parts of the book. It's probably the most famous part of Ecclesiastes because maybe you didn't even know it was in Ecclesiastes, right? Uh, maybe you just know the bird's song um, and, and uh, know it, it uh, from that. But it is probably the most popular because of the way it's written. But it really does, as we've looked even already, uh, talk about times and seasons and the compression of that. And I don't think there's any, uh, you know, one, one great illustration. There's probably good illustrations of this, but I find is at the airport. <laughs> A compression of time and seasons. And I remember just being there and just, you know, when you wait, you go wait for somebody for, uh, you know, that's arriving and you just kind of notice, try do this sometime, just watch kind of people, three in, three stories in particular, different times that I've been at the airport have been really moving to me because, you know, when you're in an airport, time is everything. I mean, you better make it to your plane, you're looking at a board of time. But what's fascinating, and, and it, even lately, I think South Australians has kind of picked up on this in their commercials, is there's stories going on in the midst of this scheduling, this busy scheduling, all these people. 
One of which I remember there was a, a, a divorced couple and it was very obvious that they were living in different cities and they were handing their child off. Uh, and just the tears and this child not wanting to go and the excruciating pain of seeing that and thinking, man, this is, must be what, one different, little child, difficult season in this, this family's life. Something about it was just, it just tore my heart out. And yet they're just pressed for time. They have to go, they have to make their flight, but they, they have to live in this season of where they have to go back and forth. The other one was a time when I was watching a family saying goodbye to the father and uh, the father was in the military. He was dressed from head to toe and he was leaving. It was obviously he was going on to his tour and you could tell just multiple hugs from both, uh, both uh, mother and wife and children and seeing that in that season and thinking of a season of war and what it's like, and me even having friends, and maybe many of you have served or have friends that have been in the military or spouses and knowing that season, that it's, it's, it's a very difficult season of time of war. Finally, one that I, I remember that strikes me as well, just from my own personal story, is being at the airport and, and seeing a bunch of people with signs holding, welcome home, and then Two people coming off a plane and in their arms a brand new adopted child and seeing their joy and I guess apparently grandparents and, and extended family and even friends there, even singing, dancing, laughing, receiving this child into a whole new season. They, they have had one season, right, where their arms were empty and now they have some season where their arms are full and all compressed in this time, right? Right? That, there's a reason this was, was pinned. There's a reason that this passage was pinned this way and why that has such a pronounced effect on us. We all are living in a different season right now. We're gonna talk about that. But we all also feel the compression of time and then the longing, the longing, and I think you know this the best with the most simple illustration when you have to say goodbye to somebody. That there's something wrong with saying goodbye to somebody. That there should be a length of time. Should, time shouldn't exist in certain spaces and that we're meant for eternity. That verse 11 says, eternity is built in our hearts. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that struggle? And I think that, that the, the preacher has given us some parts of that. And he talks about it in two ways here. He talks about the temporal, the, the finite, right, in this passage of time too, as we sang and are living in it. And then he talks about the eternal and our deep desire for it. So the temporal and the eternal and how we deal with that. You know, as he begins here with uh, time, it is the obvious word that stands out, right? In these first eight verses, a time to be born, a time to plant. I mean, it's just over and over, over and over time, 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 time. It's the dominant word. And I think rightly so, it dominates our lives. I think there's a reason that he's using this language, a time, because time dominates us. We're always doing things by it. It's an observation as he's not trying to write out what history's like. Now, it'd be easy for us to take this all philosophically and say, is he saying history is closed and it's cyclical and we're just trapped in this? No, the, the preacher is not really saying that. He's not trying to give us, he's giving us an observation of how times and seasons work in our lives. 
He's trying to get you to be honest about the way this little thing on your arm or on your phone controls you way more than you think. It, it controls your joys, it controls everything. I mean, even taking a couple of these verses, a time to be born and a time to die, those things that are fixed, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, it is a fixed deal. I just, we just had my son's eighth birthday not, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And um, it's a fixed point in time. It's just this beautiful thing. Here it comes, we're preparing for it. Now we're past it. And it's just this set thing. It's this beautiful fixed deal. But some things in life are fixed. There's nothing that time can do. But tell us it's forward or backward. Time tells us that. Sometimes time stops slowly, right? Even verse four, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. You know, when, when, when you feel ill, when you get sick, some of you may have been sick and all the illness that's been going around the last few months. You know, when you f- get sick and just time slows, everything else kind of gets pushed to the side. And you feel like, I just got to get healthy. <laughs> I just got to move past this. Time does that. I was, I was even at a wedding, performing a, a wedding in Birmingham just this last weekend. Um, and it's so interesting sitting in the rehearsal dinner, many of you have been a part of these, you know, you sit in a rehearsal dinner and you hear people talk about a fixed point in time where that person made a deep, profound impact on a character, right? Everything's about this one story or this one fixed thing. There was something fixed in time but set in motion, either a joy or sadness. I, I heard a lot of sad tears and a lot of uh, laughing and, and, and joys and, and, and time does that time causes us to look forward to things right it says this couple was looking forward this set date that's one of the things I prayed for them the set date of their wedding was coming the set date and they've been looking forward to it it's fixed but everything around it either caused stress or joy right something picking flowers some things you know, there's it can cause joy or sadness Time stops, it's interesting. It makes, us, it makes us realize what we would like to do is harness it or and avoid it or use it. I, there's an article, listen to this. This is in the New Yorker, pretty recent, called The Secret Life of Time. And it's fascinating to hear the author, what, what he said. He said, more than I like lately, I wake to the sound of the bedside clock. The room is dark without detail and it expands in such a way that it seems as if I'm outdoors under an empty sky or underground or in a cavern. I might be falling through space. I might be dreaming, could be dead. Only the clock moves. Its tick is steady, unhurried. At these moments, I have the most chilling understanding that time moves in only one direction. I'm most aware of being at the service of something. There is a machine in me, or I am a ghost in it. And listen to this. And once the ghost gets thinking, there is much to think about. Most of all, how little time I have in which to do all the things that I'm thinking about and how behind I am. Until very recently, that included a book about, of all things, the biology and perception of time, which had preoccupied me since before my kids, twin boys, Leo and Joshua, now 10, were born. In its wake is everything else, the melting ice caps, the cost of orthodontics, the, the gutters I have to clean before winter if winter really comes. The end of the year is nearly here and still my schedule is scattered across 
our uh, product, four productivity apps. For more than 2,000 years, the world's great minds have argued about the essence of time. Is it finite or infinite? Does it flow like a river or is it granular? Proceeding in small bits like sand trickling through an hourglass, what is it? And then he goes on to say this, and this is what I thought was most fascinating. He said, time may seem slippery and maddening, abstra- madding, maddeningly abs- um, abstract, but it's also deeply intimate, infusing our every word and gesture. And he quotes somebody here, and you'll recognize. Its essence, Augustine argued, that he then quotes St. Augustine in the New Yorker, who is one of the greatest theologians of the fourth century. Augustine argued can be gleaned from a single line of speech, Deus creator ominum, God creator of all things. Now that's being quoted in the New Yorker and here's what's fascinating. He goes on from that line to say, what should cause us to see time as it is and to embrace it is the fact that God is creator of all things. That's being quoted in the New Yorker. I think it's amazing. And isn't it true what time does to us and how it runs our life, how it keeps us fixed. Sometimes we wake up and we hear that clock and we know it. I hate those moments when I set my alarm and I wake up and the alarm, I still have like 30 to 45 minutes until the alarm goes off and time is just running me. And I'm like, should I get up now? Am I going to be more productive? (laughs) Did I just lose sleep or joy or time does all sorts of those things. But what I love about that is pointing us, there has to be something greater, that time is pointing us to something beyond time. The New Yorker's even telling us that. And what's great about this, it's not just the times, it's the seasons in here. The other part of this is the seasons that are listed. And we don't have time to go through all of them, obviously. Don't have time, the irony. Don't have time to go through all of them. Right, even our service is limited to time. Even many of you are sitting there going, you're taking too much time, right? But the seasons here, here's what's what's the most powerful part of this. What is a season? A season has a beginning and an end. A season can be bookended. It's a definitive point. And the question really is, when you look at this, isn't so much to go, yeah, that's just really good observations. It's to actually ask us, what season are you in? Are you aware of the seasons of your life? Are you aware of what's going on within you? Are you aware of the ebb and flow? And not just are you aware of it, are you living in it well? The preacher wants us to understand this because he's saying, in order to understand what it means to live in the temporal and our struggle in it, it means we need to learn how to live in reality of seasons well and not just go along with it. And most of us fight these. You know, if you read this list, the time to be born, you see the pitting between things that we really would love to exist in and things that we don't want to exist in. And most of us look at a list like this and say, the things that he's talking about that we want to exist in are blessings and the other things are curses. And some of us would even say further and say, when we see death and mourning and all these things, it means we're doing something wrong or sinful. That is not what the preacher is saying. He's saying, you must hold both. You live and exist in both. 
And it is so important to understand that because the measure of your worth isn't about the season you're in. The number one book that would tell you this is a book called Job. And maybe many of you have heard of this book. Job is about a man who lost everything. It's a a book of suffering. It's It's a poetic book. It's beautifully written and very difficult. And it's about a man who had uh, uh, multiple children and had a wife and a family and lots going on in his life and everything was taken from him. And immediately when that happens, what comes into view are all these friends of his that come to him and say, you know what? You must have done something wrong. In order for you to lose everything you have, in order for you to be this destitute, even physically, he begins to even have boils on his skin and live horrible suffering life. His friends, all they can say to him is, what have you done? We're gonna help you figure out what happened to you. What sin have you committed? And God comes in at the very end of that book to say, all your friends couldn't be more wrong. And God says, it is not about what you have done wrong. It is about me as God in the season that you are in. And how are you suffering well? In fact, God says this. He says, I'm gonna list these things to you about my character. Tell me if you understand. And instead of God trying to say what Job did wrong, he didn't minimize himself. He doesn't doesn't say, Job, here's your problem. He maximizes himself in that. And the seasons here, it is so important for us not to just kick against all the seasons, but learn how to live in them. Some of you have been living in very, very difficult season. It could be an extended period of time. It could be a short window. And some of you are so hard on yourself about how you're living in that season. As if you should think more beautifully or be more productive. I'll tell you this, some of the seasons in my life that have been so long, I'm telling you years. I have had friends and I've had to be able to tell them, I literally cannot pray to God right now. And they say, don't, let us pray for you. Let us hold you up in this season. And some of you are in seasons that seem so beautiful. It seems like there's such rich kindness in your season. It could be a million different things. Maybe you just got a new job. Maybe you just have a new set of friends and maybe those things are going so well. How do you live well in that season? How do you rejoice in that? And not just think this is a good season, this is a bad one, but that God is moving in both, that his hand is over it. How are you submitting and planning within each season? How are you dancing? How are you mourning? How are you learning to do these things well? You know what we're gonna see in a few weeks that I wish I could go into now is is the way that the ancients would approach even mourning. That line even, a time to weep, a time to laugh, time to mourn, a time to dance. This last weekend when I was performing that wedding, there was so much in the stories of that rehearsal dinner that spoke every one of those lines. This is what we mourn about. This is what we dance. Everything brought into that, into view. And isn't that what relationship is? If you really have a relationship with God and what he's saying here is you are going to be in season with God and out of season. There's gonna be moments, just like in any relationship, where it is difficult and you want to yell at him 
or you want to praise him. But isn't that real relationship? And isn't that what God is doing? He's not minimizing your suffering. He's meeting you in it in the season. He's mining this out. He's telling you the reality of it. And here's what's great after this. He moves right into the category, not just of the temporal and us feeling what's temporal. We've felt that for a long time. We feel that in multiple ways in our lives. But what's eternal? In verse 11, he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so he, that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. When he starts talking about eternity in our hearts, it means that every one of us, though we live in the first few verses there in that time and season, running through all of our veins is the longing for eternity. It is like I said, that sadness when you say goodbye to your family that may live in another city. It is that, that, that part of you that says, I wish this time together could go on and on and on. I wish this or that could, could exist in a space that wasn't cut off. And I wish those things that infiltrate that in the season didn't come and go and take away like they do. That we are built for eternity, that our hearts are for that. Eternity in, in, in Israel's history and heritage, if you're reading this, you can see it's a very important thing for them. Over and over, they talk of eternity as, as incredibly important. And they talk about it in terms of relationship. God, will you have relationship with us over a course of time? They talk about generation after generation after generation. That as they move through seasons, that the, the idea of eternity is so valid and important. It, look, and I wouldn't just say for their particular culture, it is for ours as well. Two, I want to give you two examples of that. One is technology. One of the greatest things that people are talking about now is how technology is going to expand us, expand our horizons, give us longer life. Isn't that what we want? Give us length. And a quote that I found that, was, that I've had for a while, actually, I thought it was so good to speak of this, is from a, a, a booklet called The Cyborg Manifesto. And I know that sounds weird, but this is actually a, a treatise from what many people are saying how can we expand, and when you hear, you'll know, expand ourselves from this cage, from this entrapment that we're in, and utilize the technology that we have to make us limitless. Isn't that what we want? Listen to this. Trapped for millions of years in nature's garden, with God calling the shots, we finally discovered an escape hatch. Advances in computer tech, biotech, and nanotech we have unlocked the promise of controlling our evolutionary future. We can transcend ourselves. This is, this is what's going on. This is what we want to do. This is running through our This is our cultural milieu. And even, even not only that, but the other example, I think, this is of the way we handle food. Two of the biggest ones, technology and food. This is from an article in The Atlantic called Eating Toward Immortality. Listen to this. Diet culture is just another way of dealing with the fear of death. 
There are twin motives underlying human behavior, according to Becker. The urge for heroism and the desire for atonement. At a fundamental level, people may feel a twinge of guilt of guilty for of guilt for having a body taking up space and having appetites that devour the living things around us they may crave expiation of this guilt and culture provides not only the means to achieve plentiful material comfort but also ways to sacrifice part of that comfort to achieve redemption hear this It is not enough for wellness gurus to simply amass the riches of health, beauty, and status. They must also deny themselves sugar, grains, and flesh. They must pay. This is why arguments about diet get so vicious so quickly. You're not merely disputing facts. You're pitting your wild gamble to avoid death against someone else's. You're poking at their life raft. But if their diet proves to be the one true diet, that's all capital letters, by the way, Yours must not be someone else. Um, yours must not be. If they are right, you are wrong. This is why diet culture seems so religious. People are trying to hear it. And the pursuit of life everlasting always requires this leap of faith. Like, that's the Atlantic. This is the culture that we live. We long for the eternal and we are looking for anything within the temporal to make sense of that. But God is separating himself here. The preacher says here, I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. And what he's saying in verse verse, uh, 10 there, he's saying that we are busy with all these things. And then he goes, but yet he has made everything beautiful in its time. Beautiful is another word in Hebrew for appropriate. It means that all of these seasons that he has placed us in are appropriate. It's come from his hand. They are not the things to unlock eternity. They're the things that point us to eternity. The seasons and time are to point us to say, there has to be something infinite. There has to be something eternal. You see, you understand the ancients, when they would come into worship, they would see temples and they would see the altar as the place where the finite and the infinite met. And that was the place where they made sense of everything that we are struggling with, every sacrifice, everything that we come with. This is why confession, y'all, is so important. Because it makes us come to a God with all of our temporal, seasonal time, both in sin and struggle, and bring it to the infinite. And acknowledge the fact that we are in this place, but we will not always be. It's beautiful, and here's why. It's beautiful and appropriate, and this is how, and I asked this question earlier, how do you live in this space of the temporal? It's by having an eye towards the eternal, and what that does is it drives you to compassion and contentment. Compassion and contentment. Look, knowing the seasons of our life should cause us to be, instead of harder and more distant, it should cause us to be softer, And the reason is, is if you know that God has made all the seasons beautiful, if you know that he has made, that God has made the season you're in, no matter where it is on that list, appropriate, then it can soften your heart. You know, to quote a, a, a line from such a popular book and movie right now, Wonder, think about this line, be kind because every person you meet is fighting a hard hidden battle. 
There's a beauty in that quote because every one of us, both in this room and outside, are struggling in a season. We all have our story. And what it unlocks for us, if you're here this morning and you're re-engaging maybe in the church or asking questions about Christianity, this is the distinction, is that we don't end in verse 8. Verse nine and following makes sense of our temporal. And that, if you wonder how to share the gospel, how to share the good news of Jesus is by compassion because you know your season and you're not about to tell everyone else what their season is like, like Job's friends. But to enter into other people's seasons and encourage people to enter into yours because they can know it in compassion. They can love you in that place. Knowing God softens you, not just the season, but the God whose hand makes it beautiful. C.S. Lewis said this, this great writing of his. He said, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. If we understand eternity, we can make sense of the temporal. We can move into it with compassion and love for those around us. We can transform instead of church being a place where you come in and feel like no one knows you and you don't know anyone else into a place that softens you and say, you know what? That, there may be more to that person's story than I realize. And maybe I need to share my story with them too so that we can connect with one another. And yet that drives us to is contentment. Contentment to know that we will be in a season. It's not if, it's that you will be in every one of these seasons. And contentment is, are you, are you stepping back and saying, despite the season, I'm okay. It doesn't mean you're not mourning. It doesn't mean you're not rejoicing or singing. It means though, in the back of your mind, and in the depths of your heart, is there a foundation that you stand on that makes you go, it's not like shifting stand. Contentment is that foundation. It is that rock that God calls himself where your foot does not slip because you know you're okay no matter what comes on top. No matter what storm hits. Contentment means that. That is why Paul in Philippians, in a letter he wrote to, to a group, said this, and it's so overquoted and misquoted, this verse. Philippians 4, 12, 13. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's not just a verse you slap on to your shorts thinking that you can work out better. <laughs> it's a verse that says when you can't do anything in life and you are face down and you say, God, I don't even know where you are. That's still contentment. With God. 
Because if you have that, and this is the point, learning contentment means where you find it. You find it in the fact that a God is eternal. If God is who he is, he is above the seasons. You see? You see what we trust in is not the fact that God can just change our seasons. We trust the fact that he is bigger than our seasons. We trust the fact that if he is eternal, and some theologians called this, and I love this phrase, and I was deeply studying this idea of eternity, authentic eternity. It's the fact that God has authenticity, authenticity, even authentic time. It's fact, instead of looking at God's nature and character in terms of what he isn't, what he is, is, as they say, is authentic time, that what we live in is temporal and not forever. And what we should be doing is instead of casting our eyes on what is temporal to make sense of the infinite is the reverse. Authentic time means God is of authentic time. He is the real time. His character is forever. It's unchangeable. It doesn't change. And don't you want to be in a relationship with somebody who's steady? That doesn't just change all the time, but that their love is with you always. And that's what we're doing at this table. That's what's amazing about this table. This table is the connection between, between the temporal and the eternal. That God doesn't just say, look, I'm eternal, trust in me. He, it's not enough. He sends his son to come into the temporal, into the finite, to feel every season. Did he not? To know, and I was just studying this the other day, when Jesus, it says he goes out, we, this is what we think of Jesus. He goes out into the desert to pray and spend time with his heavenly father. And we're all like, yes, that's what we should be doing. And you know what happens? The disciples find him like, what are you doing? They basically say that. Why are you out in the desert? Time. He felt the pressure of time. And yet he submitted to it. And we get brought up into the eternal by his taking on the temporal and his body and blood. Stand with me now.